Okay, so this is our Simon Dong reading group. Um, picking up, we're, we're continuing imagination and invention. We're picking up from page 152 of the translation. Uh, so we're on part four on invention. And um, so last time we're continuing with this sort of more and more elaborate forms of invention that uh, that we've been looking at um, primarily in, in various animals. Uh, in terms of like animal psychology, what types of behavior different animals are capable of. Uh, and so last time we looked mostly at the subsection on instrumental mediation. So um, essentially tool use in animals. Um, and uh, of course there's a, a sort of um, uh, tradition um, according to which tool use would be the distinctive property of human beings that, um, so that Simon Don points to this term homo faber. Um, I'm not sure what the origin of that term is. I think it's a, uh, the Stoics um, maybe introduced that term, um, but uh, it's this idea that the human being is uh, the essentially the tool-using animal, um, uh, and other animals would not use tools. Uh, and that has turned out, of course, to not be correct at all. There are many animals that use tools, um, uh, and you know, in a variety of different parts of the whole animal kingdom. Uh, so, like, uh, you can think of um, Primates, for example, using sticks to extract ants from their nest uh, or using rocks to break open nuts. Um, so those are some famous examples. Uh, but there's also birds of various kinds that um, crows, for example, will um, uh, pick up uh, a shell uh, of uh, some sort of like a, a clam or something like that and um, drop it on a hard surface to uh, to break it open. Um, and uh, in experimental settings, we, we talked about this, crows will often um, exhibit pretty sophisticated tool, like second order tool use. So like one instance that, that um, I mentioned uh, last time was uh, uh, a study where a crow has to use a, a small stick to grab a bigger stick and then use the bigger stick to grab a piece of meat. Um, so the, the crow has to figure out, um, you know, that the, the bigger stick would, uh, would serve to grab the the meat and then that the smaller stick can serve to grab the bigger stick um and so it uh it has to like make two sort of steps in instrumental mediation it has to um understand the relationships between these all these different terms at the same time uh and then even um a variety of uh insects that um you know only have a few thousand neurons and and have like a, a relatively small brain um these animals are capable of tool use so Simon Don talks about ants that um that use uh um their larvae for um uh, as like a weaving uh tool so they like take a, a pair of leaves and the larva um extrudes a kind of filament and then they use that filament to sew the we the the leaves together um and um yeah there's all kinds of other uh instances of um insects that use elements of the environment as a tool of some kind. Um, and uh, the question always arises in, in these cases um, as to, you know, to what extent is this uh, a real invention or is this some sort of like pre-programmed behavior, like um, what is normally known as instinct. Um, and it's always difficult to, you know, prove one way or the other. Um, and especially it's difficult to show, like to show that it's an invention, you have to Sort of prove a negative. You have to show that um, this is not a uh, species typical behavior, um, and and so yeah, it's it's always difficult to prove a negative. Um, uh, but in uh, in certain settings, you can you can 
like in, in an experimental setting, you can set up a situation that is so untypical for that organism uh, that you can sort of safely assume that this is a novel situation. It's not something that the animal evolves to um, to deal with. Um, and so, like um, the the example, one, one of Simondol's examples here is uh, these beetles that bury um, dead animals. They they sort of dig underneath the animal until the animal sinks into the ground, and then they uh, I think lay their eggs inside the rotting carcass. Um, and um, uh, so, in, in this one instance, the the dead animal was um, tied to a, a stick or something to a anyway something. It was sort of supported so that it would not sink into the ground and so the beetles um start digging around the animal but then once they sort of realize that the animal is not sinking into the ground the way it normally would they do a bit of exploration and then find the string that's tied that's tying the animal to the stick and then they cut the string and then the animal um falls into the hole that they started digging so um clearly in the wild in the sort of normal environment of beetles they don't come across um, animals that are tied tied to a, a stick. Um, so this is a, an unusual situation where the beetle has to um, adapt its behavior in such a way as to produce the desired results, uh, even though the um, the, uh, the the object is um, behaving in an unusual way. Um, so, I mean, to some extent, um, in this situation, we can see that there's a, a certain flexibility of the animal's behavior. It's not just sort of um, a preset program that is just sort of released by seeing a dead animal. Um, it has to, like, the animal is capable of um, adapting its behavior to changes in the environment or unusual uh, aspects of the environment. And so this is a kind of invention uh, for Simon Dong. Uh, um, and, and yeah, so part of what um, makes uh, something an invention uh, that Simon Dong described in this rather dense uh, third subsection that we read uh, at the end of last session um part of it has to do with being able to organize um with the way that the uh images are organized together um so in so he he talks about like as a sort of um analogy here um is that we have a if we look at a map of a of a a space um our image our mental image of this map um our visual image uh, allows us to navigate that territory so it it um our behavior on that territory is going to be more adaptive. Uh, we can more easily reach our goals um, by virtue of having this mental image of the map of the territory. Whereas if you just sort of drop someone off in the middle of a, a landscape in a, a city or a forest or whatever, um, and they don't have that map or, or haven't um, internalized the image of that map, then their um, navigation in that territory is going to be much more difficult. Uh, and so likewise, um, uh, he talks about how animals um, have to learn how different objects um, behave in order to have an inventive relationship to that object. So um, he talks about this example of uh, uh, apes in a cage um, that uh, are given like a bunch of boxes and they just sort of play with the boxes. They, you know, throw them around, pick them up, uh, stack them on top of each other, etc. Uh, and then later on after they've had a chance to explore the boxes they are presented with um a banana or some other desirable food uh at the top of the cage that they can't reach and uh the ones the monkeys or apes that have um that have had the opportunity to play with the boxes uh figure out that they can stack the boxes on top of each other 
and climb climb on top of the boxes and grab the banana, whereas the monkeys or apes that have not had this opportunity to play with the boxes um, don't figure this out. So again, this sort of undirected um, uh, exploration of the um, of the properties of the objects is a prerequisite for the inventive uh, the capacity to invent uh, a solution to this problem uh, using the the, the boxes. Uh, so. Um, yeah, we talked about this last bit about how um, to carry out an invention, you need to have some sort of balance between um, the uh, affective charge of the situation that you find yourself in. So in the case of the apes, it's the desire to reach the banana. Um, and this has to be sort of counterbalanced by the um, uh, sort of unpolarized or, or low affective charge exploration behavior. So the, all the images, uh, visual, tactile, etc., of of the properties of the box that have been acquired through play. Um, so these two sides have to sort of balance each other out, and it's only in that situation that an invention can happen. Um, whereas in a situation where the affective charge of, you know, this desire for the banana or, um, uh, you know, any sort of situation where there's a, a strong um, attraction of a ghoul of some kind, um, if you don't have those prerequisite um, exploratory images, to balance it out, you you end up getting sort of stuck. You get, uh, you know, sometimes we talk about tunnel vision. Like you you only are sort of seeing the goal uh, and how desirable it is, but then you you don't um, you don't have uh, a sort of uh, counterbalance in those uh, pr uh, prior exploratory images to allow you to invent a solution. And so an instance of this that he mentioned earlier is um, cats that are in a, a viral shaped maze. They if if the uh, if the food is in the center of the spiral and the cat is outside, the cat is able to um, uh, keep uh, going around the spiral till it finds the center and reach the food. But if if you have it the other way around, if the cat is in the center and the food is on the outside, then the cat um, uh, is not capable of um, solving this problem because it has to keep getting further and further away from the food um, in order to finally uh, exit the spiral and, and reach the food. Uh, and so the cat is sort of stuck in this um, uh, too strongly polarized situation of like wanting to stay, wanting to get as close as possible to the food or wanting to go directly towards the food. And it can't um, bring itself to uh, distance itself from the food provisionally or uh, temporarily um, in order to actually reach it um, later on. So uh, this is an instance of that sort of tunnel vision where the, the animal can't um, sort of repress its desire to go directly towards the goal um, and, and solve the problem by its knowledge of the situation. Uh, so that's about what we saw last time. Um, so uh, if I can get a volunteer to read, uh, let's see, yeah, the first page of uh, the next section from the heading B. I can read. Um... B. Invention Concerning Signs and Symbols, Subsection 1. Objective Metrological Formalization from Technics to Science. How did the shift occur, especially for humanity, from concrete situations to a symbolic formulation that enables the solution not only of a countless diversity of practical problems in each situation, but also of general and theoretical problems for which real difficulties figure as particular cases, as was the case since antiquity for many problems of mechanics or hydrostatics. We can surmise that this shift from, a, from particular concrete cases to general and theoretical cases is effectuated 
on the basis of action by the intermediary of the partially theoretical and abstract formalization uh, that the use of living auxiliaries in, a, in an action requires. Auxiliaries whose actions one must organize in relation to a goal through commands and a univocal and coherent system of directing data toward the execution of a task. So long as each individual imagines, invents, and executes, practical thought can remain implicit, since it does not go beyond the operator who is the milieu of formalization and execution of the project and its realization. Um, the use of domestic animals to carry out a task already requires that the person who directs them has a more theoretical representation of the activity of operators, of the application of forces, of the resistance of masses, and of the direction of tools. But insofar as the driver stays by the side of the auxiliary animals, the effort of symbolization does not need to be developed into an independent system of signs. By contrast, when an individual calls upon others, servants or slaves, to execute a task, the transmission of commands cannot remain a step-by-step subjugation. In order to make the organized efforts of a team coherent, in order to synchronize activities and harmonize fragmentary executions, a communicable and thus expressible and formalizable conception of the project as a whole is necessary. Recourse to abstract representation begins with the use of domestic animals and becomes fully developed with slavery or forms of labor involving subordination and thus a formulation of the task in a univocal way through a system of commands. Architecture, in the sense of construction by a team with a leader, shipbuilding, or navigation are techniques which have quickly developed the abstract positioning of problems. We sense their influence in the stereometry of the ancients, as well as in formulations that aim in operative terms to construct with a given component or to trace a further line with specific properties. The form of the given command has remained in the style of geometry for centuries, uh, likely because it incorporated in its content a set of statements playing a role in the transmission of commands of rational execution. The ruler and compass are instruments of execution, even if at a later stage of research the geometer is for himself as one person, the one giving the command and the one seeking to execute it with his own ruler and his own compass. Order and organization, commands given, and structures of execution happen to be formal formalizations of the task in accordance with the exigencies of information transmission of the one who knows and once the one who one of the one who knows and then one who knows and wants to the one who executes and obeys. You know, this is seems like one of those paragraphs that we could just spend kind of the whole time talking about. It's very dense and rich, but um, the idea here basically seems to be that the development of these formal languages um, arose in these concrete situations where uh, commands needed to be communicated to presumably um, people who couldn't be directly directly monitored. And so it seems like he's arguing that even, you know, like geometry, um, or at least the formalization of, of um, mathematical notation, or maybe the form of the arguments that um, 
you find in like geometry texts, I don't know if he has something like Euclid's elements in mind, uh, originate in these social situations where um, someone is giving a command to subordinates. Yeah, I think here we can definitely um, think of the uh, passage in Individuation when he talks about how the um, isomorphic schema is uh, a slave owner's mode of thought, essentially. Um, uh, so the, in, in that passage, he talks about how um, the slave owner, um, you know, buys a bunch of clay and tells his, his slaves uh, make a bunch of bricks out of it. And he, so he has in mind, he has this form of a brick, uh, this rectangular shape. Um, uh, so this form is what he communicates to his slaves. He says, you know, this form, this shape is what you need to um, impose on this matter. Um, and so here we can see a similar type of, um, uh, so this, this sort of formalization is happening in a similar way here, uh, in the sense that the formal side of language or, um, or thought, uh, the capacity to um, extract from concrete situations uh, a form that is common to several different situations. Um, so like the shape of a brick um, is not just the shape of this one brick, but of many bricks. Um, um, so this, uh, this sort of um, formalized thought, this thought that applies to many situations um, by virtue of their form, uh, this arises in a situation where you have to communicate a command um, or where, where there's a social or organization of subordination where the, the, the one who um, sort of plans the, the work is separate from the one who executes the work. Um, so yeah, the, and then in the case of geometry, so he mentions that um, in sort of the future development in, in when geometry sort of arises as a, a specific science in ancient Greece, um, you have the, the person making the command and the person executing the command coincide um, but, but we can look at um, um, sort of the prehistory of geometry. So in Egyptian mathematics, for example, it, uh, um, it, it's often, geometry is often uh, presented as a set of problems. So it's like, given a field of size X, how to um, find, how to, uh, um, uh, or sorry, a field of area X, how do you um, construct a field of area 2X, for example? Um, like what are the measurements of the field with area two x? Um, uh, so like it's it's a clearly concrete problem, and it's uh, and I mean the the etymology of the term geometry comes from uh, like it literally means uh, land measurement um, or earth measurement, uh, and so this this is a, the type of problem that geometry arises out of is um, uh, you know measuring the fields that belong to particular people, um, you know measuring the uh, sides of a pyramid uh, or like the amount of bricks that you need to construct a pyramid or, or uh, some structure of some kind. Um, uh, and so these sort of concrete problems where someone, uh, you know, the architect in sort of the broad sense of the term, anyone who has a, a sort of uh, conception of what the, the goal is, um, that person has the plan in mind and has to communicate it to someone else who executes it. And so in this situation, um, you have to extract the, the form of the situation, the sort of um, key property. So here, geometrical form is, uh, is sort of the paradigmatic instance of this, but it could be some other type of form, other type of sort of essential properties of a situation. You extract those essential properties and you communicate only that to someone else. Um, and, and because it's um, formalized in this sense, it's not tied to 
any one concrete situation anymore. So uh, the architect who um, designs a pyramid in one city can move to a different city and, and you know, use the same design and have uh, someone else build uh, a, a pyramid of the same form uh, in a different location. Um, so the, these forms are sort of reusable or re um, re-instantiatable, I guess you could say. Um, you can instantiate the form more than once. Uh, and so, um, yeah, and then so he mentions later in geometry, um, you have, like in Euclid, you have, um, like, problems, like, um, given a line to draw a circle, um, uh, or, you know, given a line to bisect that line, uh, for example, I think it's the first proposition of Euclid, if I remember correctly. Um, so, um, here you can see that there's a, a sort of command that, you know, I'm giving you a line and I want you to um, divide it into two equal um, portions of a line. Uh, and, and then uh, in this case, in geometry as a science, as it appears in ancient Greece, as opposed to like a, a practical art of um, measuring uh, fields and uh, buildings and so on, um, geometry as a sort of independent science, uh, uh, in this case, the person giving the command and the person executing the command coincide so it's the same person doing both um but uh uh this is a sort of um idealization or or an extension of the initial situation where it's uh one person who um comes up with the plan and the and has the form in mind and then communicates it to someone else who executes that plan right and uh, angus has pointed out in the chat here that um yeah, in, in that passage in Individuation, when he talks about um, the holomorphic schema, he emphasizes that there's a, a sort of epistemological deficiency of the holomorphic schema in the sense that it, um, it only looks at the form and matter, and it doesn't look at the actual interaction by means of which form and matter um, are sort of joined to each other. So in the case of the brick-making example, it's just this rectangular shape, this abstract rectangular shape of a brick, and um, the matter, the clay... Uh, and they're supposed to be, you know, you're supposed to impose this form on the clay. Um, but the actual process of taking the clay, you know, sifting it, um, uh, moistening it in, in the right amount, uh, with the right amount of water, um, you know, packing it into the molds, uh, pressing the molds and, and allowing it to dry, etc. The whole process through which um, the form in, incarnated in the mold uh, is imposed on the matter. Um, is sort of left out of the picture and, and becomes this uh, sort of obscure intermediary zone. Um, whereas here, in this text at least, he's not emphasizing that um, epistemological deficiency. He's talking about, um, uh, so like he, he, he doesn't want, he, like when he talks about the hylomorphic schema as, um, uh, and, and he criticizes the hylomorphic schema, he's not saying it's like stupid or useless or something along those lines. He's emphasizing a weakness of it in that text, but he, here he's emphasizing, um, you know, why it has had so much power over the centuries. Why um, Western science, uh, you know, focused on this hylomorphic schema for you know two thousand years or so, um, uh, and part of it is this capacity to communicate something about a situation, um, you know, to grasp the form, the essential properties of a situation, and uh, you know, make that communicable to someone else. Um, uh, so that they can, you know, execute the the action that corresponds to that form. Um, so this this is like the the positive side of the holomorphic schema. It's it's capacity to communicate the essence of a situation um, without the sort of um, unnecessary details. 
so this, uh, that's what he's emphasizing here, whereas in individuation, he emphasizes the limitations of this schema and why it's not sort of ultimately adequate. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the next page. Um, 61, do you have a mic? Are you uh, able to read? Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, sorry, I didn't have my headphones in, but yes, I heard you. Okay. Oh, <clears throat> let me get my, I, I'm looking through like five PDFs right now. Yeah, so we're at the top of page 154 of, uh, of this one. Um, I don't have the same pag pagination. What uh, What's the first words of the paragraph? So I don't. Oh, right. Yes. Uh, so it's like a page into section B. Uh, the first line is one particular aspect of the formalization. Okay, I found it. One particular aspect of the formalization of tasks towards the transmission of commands becomes visible with the emergence of complex automatic machines capable of receiving all of the commands before the start of the operation in the form of data and rules. It was then necessary to reinvent logically and in an explicit way the activities practiced by humans according to the semi-implicit, semi-explicit rules. For instance, one of the first chess-playing machines obeyed all of the codified rules of the game of chess, but would place two or more pieces on top of each other on the same square. This rule, an implicit part of practical knowledge, had not been included in the given system as a command to the automatic player, only after succeeding in the complete transmission of the rules of the game of chess to an automatic machine was the system considered fully formulated. Recourse to an instrumental mediation in the form of another living being or a machine provokes through the recruitment of supplementary effects that arise a uniform and explicit translation of the terms of tasks and problems, which represents a reinvention of operative modes that renders them independent of the subject and prepares the existence of an independent world of invented reality. Abstract formulations of geometrical problems in analysis became universalized at the time when the design of machines capable of tracing the set of all the curves was being sought. Uh, a supplemental aspect of the necessity for formalizing operative modes involving their explicit reinvention and preparing their objectification is that of educating children or adults by means of clear expression rather than direct learning. Uh, direct learning practice and manipulation. The recipe must be converted into a logical modality expressible in numbers and figures. This difficulty is so great that it often leads to, quote, theoretical, that is, simplified formalizations, into presentations that are merely pedagogical. However, the recognition of the logical value of inventions and of the possibility of clearly representing operative modes in a universal language coincides in Western cultures with the movement of progress during the Enlightenment, see in particular the Encyclopedia of Diderot and de Lambert as an example of explicit expression of the operative modes of professions. The quest for precise modes of expression integral to, to techniques, or sorry, to techniques, has led to the universalization of units of measure for the sake of homogeneity and univocity, and of the internal system which connects them to each other, decimal metric system. Metrology is still not a science in the sense of a universal symbolism of operations of conversion, but it prepares instruments for and opens a functional domain to it. Metrological universalization enables one to measure quantities and discover constancies through the conversion of one concrete form into another, a source of invention. The idea that nothing is lost and nothing created, whether in terms of matter or energy, translates first a metrological ideal extended to the whole universe. A large number of inventions figure as an organization of conditions of constancy, of conservation of energy or of matter in spite of changes from pluses to minuses or changes, changes of physical state. Hence, cable cars in which one end of a cable is attached to an ascending car and the other to a descending one implement an invention 
by the maintenance of a constant quantity of potential energy in the system for cars of equal loads. All the, mach all the machine has to do is overcome frictions and ensure accelerations and decelerations at the start and destination since they are not neutralized across cars. The more perfect the development of a symbolic measuring system is, the more com compatibility can be carried out by linking perceptually heterogeneous realities together. Hence, the cable car schema, in which compatibility is directly perceptible as ascending and descending motion, can give rise to that of tramway or electric trains coupled to the same electrical circuit. The electrical dynamos of one of these vehicles functions as a receptor, thus as motor, while those of another functions as a generator, thus as a brake. A reciprocity, which produces the same cons conservation of mechanical energy now through the conversion of electricity, as that of the cable cars, but here extending compatibility to synchronized acceleration and deceleration. A third threshold could be crossed through a second conversion, now into chemical energy in a battery, since the synchronization of the ascent of one vehicle with the descent of the other, or the slowing down of one with the acceleration of the other, would no longer be required. Metrological symbolism, in its extension, enables the comprehension and invention of ever wider compatibilities. With cable cars, it is not only synchronization that is required, but also a parallelism and proximity of routes. With dynamos, synchronization is still required, but not proximity. With buffer batteries, neither synchronization nor proximity are needed to preserve compatibility. I guess there's one concluding paragraph here. The cases of cable cars and the dynamos of tramways are merely pedagogical, that is simplified, yet they nonetheless contain real invention schemas of the 19th century belonging to the framework of applications of the principle of the conservation of energy. Right, thanks. Yeah, it's one of our famous um, page-long paragraphs that our friend Simon don't like so much. Um, um, yeah, so here, so this is something that, um, again, in uh, individuation, he talked about this um, encyclopedic mode of thought um, that takes... Um, uh, some sort of practical knowledge, so um, the skill of a craft, for example, um, you know, shoemakers or uh, uh, woodworkers or whatever, metal workers, um, these sort of particular craft skills that have, you know, the, the person who exercises this skill has all sorts of implicit knowledge of um, the properties of metals, for example, you know, if I put this type of metal in the fire at this angle, um, then it, you know, has this kind of results. Uh, um, you know, these sort of um, implicit uh, craft skills, uh, the, the encyclopedic mode of thought will sort of translate that into explicit knowledge. So it will not just um, um, not just sort of know how to manipulate objects to produce a desired result, but it will uh, extract from this manipulation uh, the properties of the objects that are essential to um, bringing about this result. So uh, instead of just, you know, having a, a sort of implicit knowledge of how to um, produce, uh, I don't know, steel of a certain consistency. Um, it will instead look at the properties of minerals and, you know, the, the carbon content that the steel has to have um, and, and, uh, and so on. Uh, all these different pro theoretical properties, um, explicitly um, communicable properties that uh, the material has to have um, to bring about the kind of result that you're looking for. Um, and so the encyclopédie um, in in the late 18th century um, was uh, is Simondon's sort of favorite instance of this. So it um, it has uh, like all sorts of articles about particular crafts that are exercised in France in the 18th century, 
and um, all sorts of uh, diagrams of the different tools and machines that were in use. Um, and it uh, tries to give um, scientific explanations or theoretical explanations, uh, explanations in terms of um, knowledge that can be communicated uh, of how the diff these different crafts work. Uh, and so um, this is, so it's, it's the opposite of um, a sort of apprenticeship kind of mode of thinking or a mode of um, appropriation of knowledge. So an, in an apprenticeship, you learn by observing the master and uh, trying to replicate what the master does, and you learn this implicit craft knowledge, but um, you may not be able to communicate to someone else outside the craft what exactly it is that you're doing or, or why you're doing something in a particular way. Uh, uh, whereas in encyclopedic thinking, the whole idea is to make that make that knowledge as explicit as possible so that you can communicate it to someone who um, who hasn't studied that craft. Uh, and and so this is a, a kind of explicitation um, of knowledge and it requires, again, that formalization so that um, the, the type of knowledge that the metal worker exercises in a particular forge somewhere in uh, in France, um, for example, uh, you can extract from that particular forge and, and the, the context of France, you can, like a different forge in Germany could um, uh, perform the same actions and, uh, and in principle get the same results. Uh, so um, again, you're, you're sort of formalizing your knowledge, you're making it communicable, um, and, and you know, this allows for the, the transportation of um, uh, a sort of technical um, system uh, from one location to another. Uh, and then, so the example, and oh, and maybe one thing also I'll mention here is uh, this idea of metrology. So um, the late 18th century and then, uh, you know, the French Revolution happens not long after the publication of the Encyclopédie. Um, and one of the sort of key lasting uh, options of the French Revolution, the French Revolutionary government, was the institution of the metric system. Um, and so one of the key um, ideas of the metric system was to replace all of the local weights and measures of, uh, so in France, prior to the revolution, each province or district would have had its own system of weights and measures. So if you um, bring your crops to, uh, to a market in one town, you would have like one set of weights and measures. And then if you bring them to market in a, a different town in the next district, you might have a different set of weights and measures. And so um, comparing the prices is more difficult. and um, um, you know, measuring like, you know, is, uh, is wheat cheaper or more expensive in District A compared to District B um, becomes more difficult. Uh, and, and so the idea of a uniform system of weights and measures is, uh, is to facilitate commerce um, uh, as one of the sort of key ideas that, so that the whole, uh, the whole domain, uh, in principle, the whole world, but at least the whole of France would have one system of weights and measures that would be um, easy to understand. You wouldn't have to learn, you know, how many feet there are in a, a, a league or a mile or whatever. Um, you would just have this uh, constant decimal progression. Um, so you would know exactly how many meters there are in a kilometer just by um, understanding what the name means. Um, uh, and so um, these, uh, these sort of rational systems of weights and measures would um, facilitate commerce, facilitate um, uh, technical invention because uh, you would have parts that would be standardized to the right measurements, for example. Um, and uh, um, in general, they would be uh, more uh, easily communicable as opposed to these sort of um, 
local um, uh, particular systems of weights and measures that you uh, only have access to in a particular locality. Uh, so this is like the the role of metrology and how it ties in with this encyclopedic mode of thought. Uh, and then he goes on to talk about this uh, principle of conservation as one of these sort of formal schemas of thought uh, that is used in invention. So he gives like a few different, uh, a series of examples of um, using a principle of conservation to um, perform some sort of desired technical action. So um, um, the the um, first example here is the cable cars. So like these are often used on, in a like a mountain setting where you or like uh, you can think of a ski lift, for example, um, where you have um, one one car or one set of cars ascending the mountain, uh, you know, being pulled up by the, the cable, uh, while at the same time, another car or another set of cars is uh, pulling down on the cable on the other side. Um, and so in principle, these two sides, if, if the cars are equally loaded, um, there's like not extra weight on one side, um, uh, they, they balance each other out. And so the only, like the, the motor, whatever kind of motor you're using, to actually pull the cable only has to overcome the friction uh, and and doesn't have to lift the whole weight of the car um, on the one side. Um, so this um, this idea of or this sort of uh, schema of conservation, um, you can see you can sort of directly see when when you build a device like this or when you sketch a device like this, you can see how the the cars on the descending side are pulling the cable down. And and how the cable is then pulling the other cars up, so you can sort of see the whole schema of conservation of um, potential energy, uh, sort of at work in this uh, in this device. Uh, and then he talks about um, sort of the next stage, the less the more abstract stage and less sort of immediately visible one, is where you replace the uh, direct traction model with an electric model. Um, so here you have. Um, electric trains um, where uh, the acceleration and deceleration of the trains is synchronized in such a way that uh, the same electric uh, uh, charge is um, is conserved. So one, one train is braking and so it's generating electricity um, by uh, it's sort of transmitting uh, kinetic energy into electrical energy, um, uh, transforming, I should say. Uh, and then the uh, the other train is accelerating at the same time, so it's transforming electrical energy into kinetic energy. Um, and so there's a sort of uh, converse um, transformation happening at the same time on, on both trains. Um, but of course, this type of system is, um, in a lot of contexts, is impractical because you have to actually synchronize the, the two different trains. So you can only use it in like a subway system, for example, where there's a predictable schedule of the trains. Um, if you have like a streetcar where the, the car might have to stop for traffic, for example, and, and has a sort of unpredictable schedule, um, then you have to use uh, something like a battery. So you, you, you have a, a second step of conversion uh, where the electrical energy is com converted into chemical energy in the battery. Uh, so here again, you're relying on the fact that the energy is conserved. Um, uh, a certain amount is lost as heat um, in, in any transformation like this, but um, the idea is that you are, yeah, you're conserving the energy, um, the kinetic energy becomes electrical energy, becomes chemical energy, 
And then that chemical energy can be converted back into electrical energy and, and again into kinetic energy. Um, so um, there's a this constant conversion, uh, there's a conservation um, of this quantity of energy across the, con the conversion from one form of energy to another. And so this schema of constant uh, of con uh, conservation of some quantity here, uh, energy, um, is sort of being used. Um, it, it's this sort of abstract schema that you can apply to a variety of different types of um, uh, technical devices. Um, and it's something you can communicate explicitly. You can draw up uh, a diagram of the functioning of uh, a train system. You can explain it uh, theoretically in terms of the quantity of energy and so on, as opposed to um, something like, uh, I don't know, a, a, a crashed um, water mill, for example, that might you might not be able to explain exactly what it is that's conserved and transmitted uh, in this mechanism. So this is like um, the development of formula, the progress of formalization is a kind of um, more and more abstract conception of what exactly is conserved and transmitted across these uh, technical schemas. Okay, um, so I think we have time just for the last section um, or the last bit of this uh, subsection here. Um, so I'll read this. Yeah. As for the conservation of masses, the condition of possibility of measures using the scale as an instrument through the intermediary of weight, or more directly, of elastic systems, it enabled the formalization of the basic metrology of chemistry in the era of Lavoisier after having rationalized the technical study of combustion for lighting and other oxidations, human respiration. Hence, the formalization of operations useful at the outset as means of communication to give commands or perform an educational training when the operator delegates the function of execution to a third party while retaining the management of the work, detach themselves progressively from this asymmetrical function of communication in order to become a universal and homogeneous symbolic system serving as a basis for abstract operations and providing a higher level of extension outside of homogeneous and concrete situations to the activity on invention. Symbolic formalization required to cross the distance and heterogeneity between conception and execution, weaves an abstract world of representations of objects and formulas of relations that forms a universal reserve of detours and mediations within the exercise of inventive activity. This first level of formalization continues with operative processes of techniques, prepares scientific invention, and develops a representation of the world in which knowledge and power are convertible one into the other. We might say that this mode of formalization is subjective, as independent as possible from references to a subject. It tends towards the execution of tasks by an impersonal, non-human, even non-living operator. It is a formalization for any operator whatsoever that provides a terrain for the development of scientific knowledge as a universal system of compatibilities. Right, so here we have um, the example of Lavoisier. So this was like um, um, one of the sort of key developments in chemistry was um, the use of more and more precise uh, measurements of uh, chemical processes. And, and this brings about the um, idea that uh, in a chemical interaction, there's a conservation of mass. So we had talked about conservation of energy before, um, but in a chemical interaction, there's a conservation of mass. So there's nothing produced, no, there's no increase of mass, and there's no, uh, nothing disappears in a chemical interaction. Um, and uh, this brings about a whole transformation of chemistry in the early 19th century or end of the 18th century um, with the introduction of the notion of oxygen and um, the transformation in the understanding of combustion. Um, so combustion is actually um, uh, some sort of chemical like carbon um, combining with oxygen um, as opposed to earlier theories that held that um, 
there was uh, a substance like uh, known as phlogiston, which um, was emitted in combustion. So the combustion would be um, the loss of a substance of some kind. Um, so yeah, so this uh, more accurate weighing of the um, uh, elements that go into a chemical interaction allows for this um, transformation of the whole system of what, what combustion consists in and uh, the development of the notion of chemical elements that we have today. Uh, and so in these last couple paragraphs in this subsection, he, um, he compares the um, formalization of, uh, of concepts, uh, this development of these sort of encyclopedic, um, um, th this kind of encyclopedic knowledge uh, he compares this to um, the exploration of a territory. So um, it's because uh, as, as an inventor or a scientist, you come to a problem with all this knowledge, this formal knowledge of, um, uh, you know, the properties of different chemical substances, uh, you know, these sort of schemas of thought, like the conservation of energy or the conservation of mass. You, uh, you bring all of this to bear on the problem. And so you can take these um, elaborate intellectual detours. You can... Um, solve a problem by uh, using a, a machine that seems that, that you, you know uses um, like uh, uh, chemical and electrical and all these other properties. Um, uh, you can bring this machine to bear on a problem uh, that doesn't have anything to do with those sort of schema, schemas of operation that the machine uh, uses. Uh, so yeah, you have these, this capacity to take this um, elaborate detour through this theoretical uh, formal knowledge uh, and use these different principles uh, to to solve a problem that um, you can't sort of just read off of the problem. You have to bring this knowledge uh, onto the problem uh, from your prior learning. Okay, uh, so if there's no um, sort of final thoughts or questions, um, we are going to have to end here, unfortunately. I have something else I have to get to. Um, so we'll pick up from uh, um, page 156 next time. Uh, and uh, we'll continue from there. Uh, so yeah, next week we should be able to have a full session as far as I know. Um, but yeah, so let's uh, um, meet again next week. So thanks everyone for coming out and for your contributions and uh, see you next week.